This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Annis Darkwa founder and managing director of Vision Housing Consulting Services, a nonprofit with a mission to prevent ex-offenders from reoffending upon their release from prison. Based at this time in the United Kingdom, Vision Housing helps its clients find suitable, sustainable accommodation and support, including benefits, rehabilitation, training, and employment. Vision Housing has housed over 550 people and lowered their reoffending rate to between 10 and 15 percent. Annis's work has received much positive recognition. In addition to being named an Ashoka Fellow, something we both share, she has been recognized as a member of One World Action's list of 100 women, the unseen powerful women who change the world. Among many honors, Vision Housing has also received the 2011 Center for Social Justice Award, the Social Entrepreneur Award from the Center for Public Innovation, the Active Citizen Award from EcoActive, and the PSA 16 Best Practice Project Award from the Cabinet Office. Mm-hmm. Did I miss any big ones? No. <laughs> I think that's it to the top of my head at the moment, yes. That's great. Well, to start off our dialogue, I'd really like to ask you, Honest, to tell us the story of how and why you came to the aid of those recently released from prison. Okay. Um, well, the, reason, the, the um, idea came to me whilst I was sitting in prison myself as a serving prisoner. Um, I was fortunate enough, well, not fortunate, I received an eight-year prison sentence um, upon entry into the prison system. Um, I had two choices. I could do my sentence the easy way or the hard way. Um, I chose the hard way um, and used the system to benefit myself. So I progressed very, very quickly to um, open conditions, being very proactive um, in closed conditions by setting up peer groups where I identified things that were not being addressed for the women in the prison, and it was all implemented, but then they kept moving me as they always do. Um, and upon reaching the open conditions, I set up um, a vision project, and I run the whole of the prison's resettlement program, um, which meant I had 100 women, um, just myself, and I managed all their housing, benefits, and employment. In my understanding, right, you did this actually while you were still a prisoner, you were doing that? I work? was still a prisoner. Wow, yes, that's I was. amazing. Okay, I hadn't yes, heard I that was. part. Okay. Um, I was still a serving prisoner when the Vision Project was born. Um, But every time, um, what was getting to me was there were so many women, um, ex-substance misusers, you know, um, people with um, mental health issues, they were being released from prison um, with no fixed abode. Right. And within three to six months, obviously, when they release from prison, they go to a council, they are deemed single homeless non-priority. So, as my question has always been to the government in, in England is, where do they go? Well, they go back to what they know because they need a sofa, they need somewhere to sleep, 
Um, so obviously they go back to people that they knew prior to going into prison. And then the cycle starts again, and they're back in prison. And I used to see so many people coming back and forth, back and forth. Um, and I always used to ask them, you know, why are you back in prison? What happened? And it was always the same thing, accommodation. Interesting. So I decided that it was, you know, years, a couple of years before I was released. But I thought, you know, I can do better. Than, I, can do, I can do better. I can provide accommodation and give these people a realistic chance, which is all this is all I wanted to do. Um, so of course I came out, and um, my accommodation was supposed to have been approved um, by London Probation. Um, upon my arrival to the property, it wasn't fit for a dog to live in. Mm. So I ended up in a place called Margate. Now in Great Britain, Margate is not the best of places to be in the sunshine. Um, I was standing on the pier looking out in the sea on the 14th of December 2004 or wondering what am I going to do because I couldn't sleep in the accommodation that was provided for me. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> And I also couldn't go and ask for help because technically I was in breach of my license. Ah. Therefore, I could have been recalled back to prison for a further two years for something that wasn't my fault. So let me just make sure I understand this. In other words, because you decided that the accommodations that had been uh, provided for you were Mm -hmm. not fit, Mm -hmm. that in and of itself would have been a breach of the agreement with the probation folks. Is Is that right? Yes, it's a license. It's a parole license, right, right. which means I have to sleep at the address that's on my parole paperwork. And I couldn't. I mean, there wasn't an electric socket. There was no sink. There was no cooker. There was nothing. Mm. Absolutely nothing. And as I opened the door, I fell over empty bottles. I had to squeeze through the lander because there was nothing but junk in the hallway. I mean, the place was absolutely rotten. Now, is, rotten. That, is that because someone in the system didn't do their job properly or is that can you can you explain a little bit about how what goes before vision housing came along Mm -hmm. what was going wrong and what allowed things like that to happen well for myself what had happened was the probation officer could not be bothered to come out and check the accommodation she made a telephone call to the landlord and he suggests she can have it but of course they had not seen it, which is what they're supposed to do, because they have actually got a duty of care towards me to ensure the best possible solution for me upon my release. Right. But they didn't do that. Right. So it meant I was left out in the cold on my own. And and this, in your experience from being a prisoner, you could see that this kind of thing was not an isolated case. This was the general condition of people. Is that well, absolutely. Um, and well, I, the difference with myself and most of the clients that, that we rehouse is I was a parolee. So the, my address had to go to a parole board because without that address, I would not have been released. Right. Most people that, that we're working with, the people that we're working with, they have sentences which are, they fall under the local guidelines, which means um, in, in Great Britain, what it means is these are short sentence people. Mm. So they are, they are substance misusers, they are people with mental health issues, there's a range of different issues that they go through. Um, and when, but when they are released, 
they're not on any form of supervision. So they're left on their own. Uh, does the government provide compensation to the landlords who take on parolees in this situation? How no. How is that funded? So, so the parolee is expected to show up at this place and also then to be able to pay rent? Is, is that right? Yes. And yes. That, that also would be untenable because if you don't have any work, that's going to be a difficult mm -hmm. thing to do. Well, absolutely. You know, I wonder I mean, if, you could, if you could just paint that picture for us because I think it's hard for people who haven't been through this process to yes. really imagine what it's like. You know, you come out of the prison and you only have, I was reading in some of your things, you're given something like 40 pounds. Am I, is that yes. right? And that's, and that's basically it and you're on your own. And how do people make that work? Well, they don't. Right. Um, and that, that is what's been the problem. Um, people that have, um, in, in, in Great Britain, what we call them is bed and breakfast people. Um, they go in, they come out, they go in, they come out. I mean, Holloway Prison, which is a female prison, is now known as a rest home for drug users. Wow. Um, women that are on our streets, um, they, they go so long um, and then they need a rest and they say, I'm going to commit an offence, I'm going to get arrested and I'm going into Holloway for a couple of weeks because I need a rest. Now that is not what prison is supposed to be about. But it's now, it's now used as, the women on the street will actually say, I'm, I'm just off to commit an offence, um, I need a rest, I'll go into Holloway, I'll see you in about three months time. Ah, so this becomes a pattern, and it's very expensive yes. also for the public to absolutely, do that. Absolutely, absolutely. So you get out of prison, and you have a vision to change this situation, and you begin your work. And one of the things we want our listeners to understand, I think they some of them do understand it, is that the journey of a social entrepreneur in your situation is never a straight path. And I wonder <laughs> if you could tell us the story of how you, especially in the early days, how you were able to bring on the parts of your organization to do its work. Because I know it didn't come all at once and not without a struggle. Ooh, yes. Um, well, well, again, um, you know, whilst I was in prison, go back, to, you know, to the Vision Project. I mean, I um, I managed to get my governor to send me to college. Um, when I obtained a grade A diploma in housing and welfare management, I done my IAG, which is information of uh, information advice and guidance MVQ level three, which is required for the work that I do. Um, eighteen months. Um, it, it, I was out of prison for eighteen months, just trying to gain um, voluntary work in the field. Right. Um, and every time I disclosed, um, the door was closed in my face. Um, I, it was becoming exhausting for me, um, and I could have gone back to my old ways. If I'd gone back to my old ways, I would have had money, I would have had a place to live, I would have been able to eat. Right. But I continued because I believed in, in I, you know, I just believed in, I believed in myself, um, is the right thing to say, really, um, and I kept pushing. Um, I did gain employment um, as, a, uh, a as a housing advisor with a big resettlement project, um, but within three months they sacked me. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh yes, they sacked me and said I was very proactive, very efficient, but I wasn't a team player. And uh. I think where that team player came from was I knew I could do better. And I was pushing them. Um, but nobody wants to come out of their comfort zone. 
Right. Um, so they sat to me, and I said, fine, okay, off I went. And with the, within the week, I set up Vision Housing, um, and the first three clients I ever had referred to me was from the company that sat to me. Okay. Well, that's a vote of confidence. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but for the first two and a half years of Vision Housing's life, I run it solely on my benefits. Right. which I obtained, um, I was in receipt of £59.70 a week, mm. JSA claim. Um, I set up Vision Housing on that. Um, I was in contact with the prisons. I trudged the street. I parked my car, trudged the street, uh, spoke to landlords, and just breaking down that barrier between ex-offenders, vulnerable people, and the private landlords, the, the private rented sector. Um, and it went from there. So, but for two and a half years, I had to pay my volunteer out of my benefits. My office was the back of my car. The phone was my mobile phone. So what was your first big breakthrough in moving from that very primitive beginning to getting the organization really off the ground? Well, um, I had, I, it, well, it, again, it took me a very long time. Um, I went to a job center because I kept going there because I, I was very fortunate when I, when I was released from prison because of the work that I had done inside the prison. I knew there were organizations out here. Um, so I had to find someone, and everybody, everywhere they sent me, um, they, they were no good for me. I was too old. I was, I was told I was too old. Um, the last appointment the job center sent me off for myself to receive support um, in Vision Housing, again, they told me, you're too old. Um, so <laughs> I keep being sent to these places for support, and everybody is telling me I'm too old. So I actually went back to the job centers, um, and I refused to move. And they threatened to call the police on me and have me arrested. Well, at that particular stage, I decided, well, do you know what? One night in the cells is not going to kill me. I've just done four years. So you need to find me support because I'm not moving. Um, and there was one lady, just one lady that came up to me and said, I know of an organization. I'd like to send you to them. And she did. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. The managing director of this organization, which was then called Ecoactive Services, she became my mentor instantly on the interview day. She asked me to be a volunteer for them, um, and I became a volunteer. And then she put me forward for um, an unlimited award, which unlimited is a hub for social entrepreneurs or social ah. enterprises. Ah, terrific, yes. Yes, um, and she put me forward to unlimited. Um, I won the first stage award, which was four thousand pounds. Which I bought a table, I bought a computer, <laughs> <laughs> all the things you need to run. Because I used to run in and out of different organisations, saying, "Can I use? Or can I have? Can I borrow?" Um, and you know, they all used to comply with me. But it, well, you know, they were very good. Um, so I set up my office in my home with this four thousand pounds, um, and then I went forward for a second stage award with Unlimited, um, and it was through Unlimited actually, the gave, it was Unlimited actually that gave me my first break. Ah, terrific. So you got both uh, a startup grant from Unlimited and then you got yes. a capacity building grant? Yes. Am I hearing that right? Well, yes, it was 4000 and then 20000 Terrific. Um, yes. 
So I'm a first and second stage award winner with Unlimited. And have you been able to find other sources of support since then? Oh, yes. I mean, since then, um, it, it went on, you know, Esme Fairbairn, Esme Fairbairn, because, um, let me go back slightly, because I never wanted to become a charity. Um, not-for-profit, yes, not-for-profit, registered as a not-for-profit organization. Um, but I didn't want to become a charity. Um, but I had no choice because I had no credibility. I was an ex-offender, and who's going to give me money? <laughs> Is somebody really going to give me £100,000 or more um, with my background? Now, I wonder if you could comment on this because I've read about your work and I've heard some interviews and it sounds like you're doing something very innovative in your connection with private landlords. Yeah. Can you talk about that? What's different about what you do in terms of reaching out to private landlords? We talk to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, vision housing is a very simple, it's a very simple concept. It can go anywhere, it can set up anywhere and it can work. It's very simple. But it's breaking down that barrier. Um, I remember um, one of my first landlords, um, I telephoned him, found his number in a shop window, telephoned him, asked if I could have a meeting with him. He said yes, and he, he actually gave me his home address, and I went around to his home, and I met with him. Um, within 10 minutes of sitting there, he said, um, <laughs> he said um, oh, darling, I've listened to you. But um, let me tell you something. I can spot an ex-offender from around the corner. And I can smell a junkie within five paces. I said, oh, really? I said, <laughs> I said that's very um, honest of you to say that. I said, but, um, but it's very blink you'll have a very blinkered view. But I only have one question for you. Would you give me your keys? And he kind of looked and said, well, yes. And I said, well, I am an ex-offender, and I'm also an ex-substance misuser. And he gave me his keys, and I've been working with him ever since. There you go. Interesting. So it's, well, I, I use the people, not use them, but, you know, um, ex-offenders, you know, my organization is, is, is based on ex-offenders. Sure. Um, a lot of my staff were my clients. Right. So they know the process. My volunteers, I bring people out of prison on a day release scheme to volunteer, volunteer for me. Others have gained employment with me, serving prisoners. Bring them out, get them work ready, put them on courses, get them working. Don't just sling them out the door. Do something. Allow them to get ready to be released. Do you act as a liaison between the private landlord and the uh, recently released offender? Is that something you do, like a matching process? Um, yes, in, in a way, yes. I mean, we broker the company. We're like a brokerage, really. We're in the middle. Um, obviously, the agreements, the tenancy agreements, are between the landlord and the tenant. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, 
and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Anna Starkwa for her work with Vision Housing Consulting Services. Give us a sense of the economics here. Is it possible for someone who's recently offended to get enough in benefits to pay the rent that they're being asked to pay? Housing benefits actually pay that. Yeah. They do. Okay, so so yeah. they can. Yeah. So part of what you're doing is helping to qualify this person for a housing benefit, and then yeah. explaining to the private landlord that there's going to be a way for you to get paid. Um, and I, I take it that without that service that you're providing to the ex-offender, this would be a very risky proposition for the landlord because if they're dealing with someone who's going to become engaged in crime or substance abuse, yes. they may not be able to get their benefits together and then the landlord won't get paid and the whole thing That's falls right. apart. Is that That's right? right? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. But we also have to ensure, and which is what we do, is we ensure that the rent goes directly to the landlord. And now the laws are changing in England at the moment. Um, well, in Great Britain, the whole law is a benefit reform. It is all changing, but we do have an exemption because of our client's vulnerability. Um, I mean, they've done pilots here, and I warned the government that this was not going to work. I warned them over a year ago um, about paying the landlord, the, um, the tenant, the rent, and expecting the tenant to pay the landlord. Now, our, there was four pilots that the government um, released, uh, one in Wales, and um, there was a couple in London. Um, and already, the, the tenant's debt in Wales, in Great Britain, was £20,000. Since the government's pilot is shot up to £120,000. So yes. these are cases where uh, the government gave a benefit to, to the ex-offender the, the and it never got it, to the landlord. No, and it right. will not go there. These are vulnerable people. Can you imagine you have, um, I don't know what the JSA now is, I think it's £70, something, and you all, in your account you get a lump sum of £400 or you gain a lump sum of 700 and something. How are you really going to pass that money to a landlord or are you going to dip into it? Sure, sure. You're going to dip into it. It's standard. So in other parts of the country, it can be arranged that the benefit goes directly to the landlord. Yes, that's and then what we do. Do you also help to counsel these uh, recently released offenders to be sure that they are good citizens in the landlord's dwelling? Is that part of what you do? Yes, yes, absolutely. It isn't just about once. Uh, housing the people is the easy part. That's very easy for us because it's our core business. It is what comes next. <laughs> it is sustainability that is important once they're housed. And it's also a very, very important that my team support the landlords as well as the tenant. If there are issues in a house, then we are there immediately. We do house inspections. We check them. My staff do not do 9 to 5. They're paid for 9 to 5. Sometimes, and a lot of the time, they're out until 7, 8 o'clock in the evening. They do not get paid for that because we don't have the money. Um, but, um, but they know what it takes to ensure the best possible reintegration back into our communities for the people that we work for because and we only work for them. Tell me about how, 
if you if you get somebody that comes out and reoffends and gets entangled back again in drug usage, what sort of resources can you provide for that a person like that? Okay, well, I'll give you an example. We had um, an Advent drug user. Um, he was on drugs. He was 40-something when he came to us. Mm. been on drugs most of his life. Um, we housed him, um, and actually the landlady lived in the house, but we took a chance on him, and we housed him. Um, and then he was fine. A year went by, nothing happened. It was great. We were in contact with the landlord, um, in contact with him. Everything was fine, and then one day... I was on my way into work, and he was sitting in the foyer. Um, I kind of looked at him and said, what's the matter? And he just looked at me and said, I've started using again. I need your help. Ah. Now, before, he would have buried his head, right. continued to continue to use, re then to pay his habit, lost his accommodation, and everything would have gone out the window. We then fast-tracked him to a drug, um, a drug rehab, um, and he's doing brilliantly again. That's great. But the fact was, you see, Vision Housing does not close its doors. Because we house, yes, we are housing. But because we house you does not mean we shut your case. Right. Now the door is open. If it's two years, three years down the line, and you need our support, you, have, you are more than welcome to come back through that door because we do not close your file. So the brilliant thing about what you've done, if I can try to describe it, is that you've really integrated social services into a housing agency so that you're making sure that the wraparound skills and abilities that re offenders have supports their uh, placement in a home and make sure that they don't bounce out of that because of yeah. external factors. And I'm understanding also that you provide training and employment services. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Well, we work with many other innovative projects. I don't work with the run of the mill, um, the ones that's been there for years. Um, I don't work with them because um, I don't believe they do any good. Um, we work with new innovative projects and I'm in Great Britain, and there are many. Um, and um, we refer on for further education, training, and employment. We never used to capture this on our database, but we've just started, I think the end of last year, we just started doing this um, because we had many success stories. Um, you know, one of our gentlemen just served 14 years in prison. He came out, we housed him on that day, we referred him on to an organization called Beyond Food. They gained him an apprenticeship in a restaurant in the centre of London. He's now um, got a job as a chef. Wow, that's that's a success story. It, it can be done. You know, um, I'm a great believer in if you want something, go and get it. Because if you sit back, nobody will come to you. Exactly. Now you've so you've actually built. Is it fair to say that you've built a network of? partnering agencies that yes, work yes. as a team now with you yes. to provide services. Absolutely. Because we cannot do this alone. We can do our part and we can work with the organizations for it to continue, the success to continue, but we cannot do anything alone. It is about partnership. It is about information sharing. It is being about open and honest, you know, as open as you possibly can with the referring on organization. And as I said, you know, they are new innovative projects that are doing absolutely fantastic work here. And they, they are the ones that I work with. Um, I don't, the, the only kind of standard um, 
or agencies we work with, which have been there always, is the drugs, obviously the drug and alcohol services. They are run of the mill, which we obviously we have to tap into those. Um, but for further education, for training, for employment, I work with all the new innovative projects that have come up behind me. Is the government an ally? Do they partner with you, or are they an <laughs> obstacle? <laughs> No, I, I'm, I think I'm an obstacle to them. Um, <laughs> I kind of, um, I'm not politically, I'm not politically correct. Uh-huh. Um, I kind of, I say it as I see it, and uh, I, <laughs> I also say it as, um, and maybe not the the right way that they like. Um, so no, I mean they they have recently taken notice. Um, of us due to the fact that we've had this evaluation done, um, which uh, the Metropolitan Police, the Metropolitan Manchester University and the Ministry of Justice um, have taken note, um, have done this for us. Um, we were in partnership with a big company called Intersurf, um, and they actually paid the £25,000 for me to have this evaluation done. Um, now, the National Offenders Management Service would not look at it, um, but they actually telephoned me just after Christmas and stated, um, we've now come down off our high horse and we have read this. We would now like to help you with further funding to continue this evaluation. Congratulations. That, that sounds like a real breakthrough. Yes, it is. And it's been, it's been such a long year. <laughs> and just so our listeners understand, Yes. I'd like to just make it clear that the study that you're referring to is a study that sh- that that showed with data that yes. providing people with stable and sustainable housing reduced yes. their rate of reoffending. Do I have that right? That's correct. It's the first UK study like this ever done. Mm. Um, you know, the Home Office Social Exclusion Unit is on their website. You know, they they have been recognising off years. Um, I, I, I cannot even think of the amount of years they have recognized that without accommodation, these people are going to reoffend. But nobody's ever done anything. Right. Tell, tell, me, tell me a little bit about your vision of the future for vision housing. What would you like to see happen over the next five years? Oh, I'd like to see a scale up. Um, I'd like to see it in England, um, England, Wales, Scotland, England, and Wales. Um, but at the moment, I am looking at, because of the uh, the benefit reforms here, things are proving really difficult. Um, but I'm now looking at building our own properties. Um, I've gone into partnership with what we call here the YMCAs, um, which we have 26 to 30 units that can be popped up within four months. Um, I'm also looking for developers who are willing to buy properties to lease them to Vision Housing. We will pay the um, local housing allowance rate to the landlord, but we will then manage the properties, which is something a bit more than what we what we currently do. Um, so I'm just tweaking everything at the Charity Commission office, and, and this is where I need to go. So that would make you a sort of halfway house. Am I right about that? Because you'd be you'd be integrating some services with a place for recently released offenders to go. Am I hearing that yes. right? Yes. Yes. Now you have a very interesting idea that I've read about and I think I've heard you speak about it, but maybe I just maybe I just read about it, which is the idea that because reducing reoffending saves public money. The concept would be that your work could be funded on the basis of performance 
rather than mm-hmm. simply through charity or through a public grant. Yes. So I wonder if you could talk about that and tell me if you've researched any similar models like that around the world. I have not um, okay. um, researched any similar models. Um, revision, I've always, before in Great Britain, they're all, they're all talking now it's the government and that's all talking about payments by results. Aha, yes. Um, I was talking to them about payments by results long before they ever spoke about it. Um, we, vision, we, so we have, we're only core funded. We're core funded by the City Bridge Trust, the Esme Fairbairn Foundation, Tudor Trust, the Oak Foundation, um, you know, and some others, and some philanthropists and, and so forth, and TFN funding network. So we have core funding for that. But the, right. the rest of our money comes from what we earn. Right. So I have eight, um, it's only eight or nine contracts with London Borough Councils. We provide the outcome. We do not invoice you unless we provide the outcome. Ah. We provide the outcome, you pay us. It's very simple. It's very simple. We don't want to be like the run-of-the-mill organizations like what we have here, resettlement projects here. They get funded, you know, a million pounds do your job. But obviously they're not doing their job, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Right. Um, so we we charge London Probation, London Borough Councils, any other third sector organisation. Once we've provided the outcome, we forward you the necessary paperwork. We pay you. We then pay us. And in this case, the outcome would be a placement, a place for this person to live. Is person that to correct? live. Yes. That's terrific. Yes. So you can build then a business model that really augments the support for your organization based on that kind oh, yeah. of fee-for-service approach. And are people interested in that? Is there support for moving in that direction? Well, the, well, the government are now bringing out this, this all payments by results. Okay. Um, but um, I've, I've, I've just actually put it, I don't like their payments by results. It's too complicated. It's yeah. a very simple thing to do. So I've just actually put a proposal together, which I'm now, I'll be sending them on Monday. Right. I've seen this done in the United States, and sometimes when they do it in the United States, they say that it's by performance, but then they demand to know how you spend all the money that that they gave you anyway. So it's very Mm. difficult to build a business model um, Mm. out of that. But it sounds like you have a more open field in which to develop a relationship in which this could work. Yes, what it is is that you pay us X amount, and what I'm putting proposing now to them is um, you pay us X amount for housing that person. If we keep them out of prison for a year, you pay us X amount. If we keep them out of prison for a further 18 months, you pay us X amount. And someone who's really thinking about public policy recognizes that you're Mm -hmm. saving them so much money if you're successful. So much money. Um, We, at the moment, (laughs) so much money. Um, is unbelievable that we are saving, we are currently saving our government here. Anis, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I'd like to mm-hmm. shift the lens just a little bit to talk about social entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. You've been quoted as saying that there's a fine line between a criminal and an entrepreneur. Yes. <laughs> this is a very humorous and provocative statement. Can you t- can you say more about that? Well, when you're an when you're an offender. Um, if, if you have a substance misuser, you know, you, see, you go for it. Right. Um, and you get your money. Um, it may be the wrong way, but you do go. You just go for things. Yes. Um, and I think entrepreneurs are the same thing. Right. We see something and we go for it. 
So it's really a willing, um, and a it's like taking it is taking risks. Yes. Whether it be an offender, you're taking a risk as an offender, or you're taking a risk as a, a social entrepreneur. Right. Um, <laughs> I have been quoted, unfortunately, and this has been put into a wrong context. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I actually stated that, and I think it was at the um, Holborn at an Ashoka event. Ah, uh, yes. And yes. And the Guardian newspaper was there. Six <laughs> months later, there was a riot in Croydon in London. Okay. Um, and they quoted that in the piece about the riot. Ah, I see. So it was, you know, but that wasn't what it was meant for, because I stated this six months prior. But I think you you're on to something, because... It is true that uh, an entrepreneur uh, is sometimes willing to go outside the existing models and outside Absolutely. the existing paradigms. And that is the same yeah. thing that a criminal sometimes does with tragic results. But the entrepreneur yeah. figures out how to, how to do that in a way and not break the rules. Yes. But you also yes. said, this is another quote of yours, and I find this very inspirational. I just want to read it. You said, if you want something... If you want to do something, get up and go do it. Don't sit yeah. and wait for someone to come and lead you because nobody is ever going to do that. If you strongly believe in something, you can achieve it. So that's a very inspiring quote. Oh, I believe in that. I believe I, in that so much. Can you, can you just expand on that for people who may be listening and thinking about their own social entrepreneurial ventures? Uh, what does it mean to you and how do you find the strength to keep going when you meet the resistance? Well, with, with regards to finding the strength, I actually don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted, <laughs> but um, I keep going. But, you know, it's very difficult when you're setting up. Um, people, you know, it depends on your background. I mean, with myself, with regards to myself, obviously people didn't, didn't have faith in me. Um, and they were all skeptical, skeptical about giving me myself money because I could have run off, you know. Um, but I kept persevering. You know, I fought for three years with London Probation Trust, um, where I don't know for some reason, was one gentleman kept ringing people and saying she's untrustworthy, she's this, she's that. Um, the more he said, the more angrier I got, and the more I was determined. And now I work with him. The same man that tried to close me down has given me a contract. Terrific. Um, because <laughs> as I stated to him, because he actually turned up and he found out that I was attending a meeting, um, and he turned up. Um, I only knew his name. I didn't know anything else. So when you go around the table and introduce you know, yourselves, uh, he said his name. I stopped the meeting immediately. I said, <laughs> I want to speak to you outside, or I'm quite happy to say what I have to say to you right here, right now. Um, and he didn't move, so I told him what I, <laughs> I told him what I thought. Um, and it went from there. Um, our relationship with probation trust was on the ground. Um, um, six months later, I had a contract. Fantastic. So you were able to convert someone who was in doubt and make them a believer and a supporter. Well, my words were, you know, I went away as an offender. Um, the only reason why I went away as an offender, that, that was my choice. That was my choice, but I'm certainly not going away right now as somebody that's trying to set up a resettlement project. You will never remove me, and that's what I said to him. You either work with me or work against me, 
Mm. But I will not suffer. You will, and your clients will. And I will prove that what I am doing is right and it works. And I've actually done that by the evaluation. I have proved that what I do works. And I think we know that that, that kind of heart is what really makes a social entrepreneur successful. Honest, yes. uh, yes. to learn more about your organization and to provide you with support, listeners could find you at Vision Housing Consulting Services on the web, which is at www.visionhousing.org.uk. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah, is, there correct any, yeah. is there anywhere else they should go, or is that it? Um, I think that's it at the moment, um, unless they have my name. I mean, there's so much. I mean, I never put anything out on, on, on the World Wide Web, but um, I don't like it. But um, there is so much out there at the moment. Um, I really have to be careful where, where I go and what I say, because everybody seems to want to put something up about me. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, even to this day, it's still hard work for us. We're still battling against barriers. Um, you know, the ministers have said, we, we don't know how you've bulldozed your way through bureaucracy. My only answer was, I do not recognize bureaucracy. What I do is to benefit the people I work for. Right. So I'm blinkered. I don't see bureaucracy. That's terrific. Well, I know you're going to be successful just listening to you, and I hope that people who listen to this will find you and uh, give you their support. Honest, thank you ever so much. Thank, thank you so much for your passion and your leadership and your impact in such an important cause, and thank you for being our guest today. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me to this. Um, I really do appreciate it. Uh, we need all the support we can get um, because we're, we're, far, we've, we're only just starting. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.